Welcome to Downstream. I'm Michael Walker and I have an interview for you today about which I am both nervous and excited. I'm nervous because we're talking about a topic which can get pretty heated, can get pretty tense online and offline. We're talking about trans rights, trans inclusion and biology. Very, very interesting topics. I'm excited because I'm speaking to my absolute favourite author and thinker on this topic, Julia Serrano. Her writings were very influential for my understanding on these issues, and in particular this book, Whipping Girl, which is now an absolute classic in the field. Uh, an introduction to the, the conversation, the context in which we are having this, is there is, at the moment, as I'm sure you're aware, many debates raging about trans rights and trans inclusion, and especially issues such as trans women in women's spaces, also issue of our, you know, our, our trans, or sorry, our teenagers due to social contagion identifying as people in the opposite sex. And, you know, personally, I, I feel like a grounding in biology, while not necessarily being that, that popular on, on, on certain parts of the left, is, is persuasive. It is very useful in those situations. We're also in a context where people who are opposed to trans inclusion, in particular gender-critical feminists or so-called TERFs, are making the argument that trans people are living in a fake fantasy world. A couple of titles for you. So these are both best-selling books. One's by Helen Joyce at The Economist. Her book is called Trans, When Ideology Meets Reality. The other is Kathleen Stock. She of leaving Sussex University fame. Her book is called Material Girls, Why Reality Matters for Feminism. Both people making the argument, trans rights, trans inclusion, trans activists, they're ignoring biology. Now, I don't think their arguments are particularly convincing. At the same time, I do think there can be a tendency in progressive circles to have a, a, a narrative and understanding of gender which I don't find that convincing, that it's all socially constructed. So we're going we're gonna to talk about those ways of looking at sex and gender today. And I am delighted to be joined by Julia Serrano. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, before we start the conversation, I wanted to give a bit of, a bit of context to, to the audience, because you know, unless you've been living under a rock, you'll probably notice there have been some big debates raging um, at the moment about trans inclusion, trans women in women's spaces are teenagers becoming trans men because of social trends. All of these talking points, all of these issues are you know, constantly on our front pages and on morning TV, e evening TV. They're everywhere. And the argument that's often made by the opponents of trans inclusion is that trans advocates, people who are advocating for trans rights and trans inclusion, what they are doing is denying reality. They're denying biology. And I have a couple of examples for you of this, so how this argument is made. So one is a book by the editor of The Economist. She's called Helen Joyce, and she wrote a book called Trans, When's Ideology Meets Reality. It's done pretty well as a book. The other is by Kathleen Stock. You might have heard of her because there was a big hoo-ha when she left Sussex University amid controversial circumstances. Her book is called Material Girls, why reality matters for feminism. And you can see what's happening here. Both of those books are saying, we as, as people who, who think the trans argument has gone too far, we are reasserting the importance of biology and of reality. You can see what they're suggesting there. Now, the reason um, that I found Julia's book so useful on this is because it, it, it really counters those arguments, but it does it in a way that I particularly find very persuasive because there is one aspect 
of some of the arguments which, which, as I say, you know, often rage online and offline when it comes to, to trans rights and trans advocacy, which sometimes I don't find convincing. And those are the ones that suggest that gender, sex, it is all biologically constructed, sorry, the opposite, all socially constructed. There isn't really any significant relationship between sexual differences and gender differences. Bit of a sort of postmodern, post-structuralist argument. I'm not saying everyone holds it, but, it, but it's there. And, and I've never found it that convincing. And Julia's book, I did, because it really grounded the argument for trans rights and trans inclusion in biology, in, in sort of science, you know, really, really persuasive. And the reason um, Julia is so well suited to make that argument is because she is a trained biologist. So Julia, you have a PhD in biochemistry and molecular, molecular biophysics from Columbia, Columbia University, that is, and you research genetics and development and evolutionary biology at Berkeley for 17 years. So you have a lot of credentials in this area. And, you know, we're going to have a very broad discussion. I suppose to kick us off, if I could get you to talk about some of those issues I raised in that introduction. So when there are arguments made by someone like Kathleen Stock or Helen Joyce, that trans people or people arguing for trans inclusion are denying biology, are denying reality... What do you make of those arguments? Even if you're not a scientist, I think we all understand that in science, ideas that seem very simple to us actually are almost always way more complex than we could even possibly imagine. Um, you know, I could like point to a coffee mug, right? And we all know that that's a coffee mug. But if you like look at the matter, like you find out, oh, it's made up of atoms and atoms are made up of you know, protons, neutrons, and electrons. And then those are made up of quarks, etc. Like the more you look, the more complicated everything is. And biology, and specifically with regards to uh, sex-related traits, is just as complex. Um, and so in biology, uh, and this is not controversial at all within the field of biology, it's understood that most traits, whether they're physical traits or behavioral traits, um, they're understood to be complex traits, meaning that there are a whole lot of factors, you know, a whole bunch of different genes, um, some environmental factors, and so on, that all come together in a really complex way to create different outcomes. And these outcomes tend to fall along spectrums. And a really useful example, because it is uh, related, it's a sex-related trait, is height. Um, we all understand that people vary in their heights. Um, it creates these bell curves. There is some uh, sex dimorphism, meaning like differences between the sexes, in that if you have a typical male puberty, you'll tend to be taller than you would if you had a typical female puberty. But we all know that there are short men and tall women. Um, and so any trait related to sex or sexuality that you can think of, you will find this variation that exists. And so the idea of, oh, trans people are denying sex um, is, is ridiculous in that we're falling along spectrums and they're the ones who are denying the, the, the diversity of sex. I, I suppose to, to flesh out their argument more, so their argument would be, look, men and women evolved differently they have different evolutionary pressures you look at all the different animals in the animal well not all the different but mammals at least you know sexually dimorphic you, 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 there's these sort of two poles which people bunch around and what trans people are saying is look yes um there, there are these there are these two groups which 
bunched around men and women, but we're actually got nothing to do with that. We're saying we're the other gender. And they're saying, no, you can't, you can't say that. Gender is something which is fundamentally inside you and you can't deny that. You know, so, so you will, even if you say you're a woman, you'll carry over all of these characteristics of being a man. How do you sort of argue against that? How do you take on, on that argument? I think it's useful to point out that um, if you look at, especially like Helen Joyce's book gets into like, oh, well, mammals have these dichotomous sexes and that's like, you know, you can find that in every mammal. And what she ignores is the fact that in every mammal that's been looked at, you will find um, members of that species even though, you know, like maybe the males and females of a particular species, they may behave in different ways. Um, these are called like sexually dimorphic behaviors, right? And so you will see that, but for every species that's been looked at, you will always find, um, like males who are attracted to other males or females who are attracted to other females, or you will find like females who are, who behave in patterns similar to how ma- males typically behave and males that behave, um, ex- express behaviors that are typical females, right? So within every mammalian species, there's sex diversity. There's always going to be exceptions to the rule. We mostly, most of us, accept that with regards to attraction that, okay, most people um, turn out to be heterosexual, but there are some people who are attracted to the same sex or um, who are uh attracted to people across different sexes or who are asexual. So we accept that diversity in certain instances, and there's this denial that there's um, some animals who behave um, in ways more typical of the other sex, right? Now, we can't uh, ask those animals how they identify, right? <laughs> um, what happens with human beings is we live in societies and some of us have experiences, like I had the experience, it was very inexplicable to me, ex- inexplicable to me. I didn't understand it. It freaked me out when I was a young kid trying to figure it out. And I f- always felt like there's something wrong with me being a boy and I felt that I should be a girl. And some of this was related to how I, my body, like, what I expected my body to be. Um, and it's hard when you're a kid trying to figure all that out. And as adults, we grow up in a society and the society has language and concepts. And so inevitably, individual people will point to use particular concepts or language to try to explain their unusual situation. So, you know, when I was growing up, it was common for trans people to say, oh, I'm a woman trapped inside a man's body or a man trapped inside a woman's body. It's not that the trans person who said that thought it was that simple. Like I knew when I was growing up, I'm like, well, I don't know if I really feel like a girl. But at the same time, I don't know what other boys feel like either. Like, I don't think any of us knows what anyone experiences. So what you find is that like different trans people in different societies will make sense of their experiences in different ways um, based upon what concepts are available. So when I was growing up as a trans person, there were transsexuals and transvestites. These were categories that came out of, uh, you know, medicine and research um, about people who were gender variant. And I made sense of it that way. And then people came up with the concept of genderqueer and, you know, non-binary. And so like nowadays, people um, growing up trans, they have different terms to, to gravitate towards. If you look across all societies, um, all societies, like 
the existence of people that we call trans, um, it's a pan-cultural, trans-historical phenomenon. But in each culture, they might make sense of it in different ways based on that culture. So I think that in any individual trans person will try to make sense of it the best that they can using concepts that exist in our particular societies. And I think that's what people are trying to get at when they say it's socially constructed. Um, but the existence, our existence, um, is something that has been present throughout human history. Well, it's, I, I think it's interesting you say that that's what people mean when they say socially constructed, because I was, I was wondering if you were sort of going to challenge me on, on my introduction, because I have at least found or my interpretation has been that arguments involving we were born this way you know massive in in the gay movement to say we were born gay so you've got to accept us seems to me among you know some of the circles I move in or or the contemporary left quite unpopular so so this idea that we're trans because we were born trans and then obviously you know that's articulated in a different manner depending on what society you were born in but that the you know there's there's something fundamentally biological going on I get the impression that's somewhat controversial, you know, among among the contemporary left. Obviously, you know, not necessarily in, in broader society. I, do you do you have that same idea? Do you think these sort of, you know, you could you could get called a biological essentialist and a, and a reactionary if you say that your your sexuality, your sexual identity is comes out of of your biology or, or genetics, for example? Do you think that that argument is as common as I'm making out, or do you think I'm overstating that? No, no, I, I definitely think there are some people who, who do use the phrase socially constructed to mean in, in a way that like it's every single thing is invented by society and, and they will try to make a case that like biology has nothing to do with anything. And in fact, that was very popular, um, both within feminism and a lot of, um, like, queer activism, particularly in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, um, and even into the 90s. And when I wrote my book, Whipping Girl, even though I take a very complex, um, holistic view of sex, gender, and sexuality, um, I've had people call me an essentialist for like talking about biology. And I think that that's kind of, it's, a, it's part of that whole simplistic nature versus nurture uh, mind versus body, um, these type of debates that are, ha have existed for a long time. But within modern feminism, modern biology, um, there's an understanding nowadays, most people, um, who actually study these things rather than people who just talk online about them, <laughs> um, yeah, understand that you can't like, uh, unravel the social from the biological. Like, that, like, let's think about this for a second. Our brains change when we have experiences, right? Our brains are always changing. We're like making new connections. If you have new experiences, you make new connections. We all understand the fact that, you know, if you, um, if you grow up in, you know, like a bilingual household or in a very musical household that you might, um, understand those aspects of the world differently than someone who doesn't have those experiences. We get that, right? But also there's, you know, aspects of our brains that are, um, hardwired is a very strong word, but there are aspects like, for example, like left-handedness is something that happens in roughly about 13% of people for reasons that we don't fully understand. There's some understanding, but it's, 
not completely understood. Um, but we just accept the fact that, okay, like a certain percentage of people are going to be left-handed rather than right-handed, even though we all understand that right-handed is the, the vast majority of people are right-handed. And you can get into like whether, you know, like there's a biology to that, right? There's a biology to say taste, like we each have different, uh, palettes and those palettes are definitely influenced by the world around us the society we're in, but there's both a mixture of, there are some things that almost everybody um, would find horrible to eat. And there's also things like, say, broccoli that I really strongly despise, <laughs> whereas a lot of people I know actually love broccoli, right? And so I think that it can be both true that biology is real and it creates differences between people at the same time that um, there's also social aspects to that and different interpretations of that and people um, being exceptions to the rule. So um, I know that that's a little bit of a divergence from uh, talking about the whether things are socially constructed or um, biological. I just, I, I believe that's a false dichotomy. And I know that most people, you know, within feminism, there's a lot of talk uh, discussions these days about embodiment, like an understanding that um, it's not just our experiences, but we're also living in bodies. Um, and in biology, there's increasing acceptance that social factors and environmental factors um, also play an important role um, with regards to our biology. Mm, I mean, I suppose I would, I would potentially push back a little bit. I, I don't think it's necessarily a false dichotomy. You know, obviously, you're the biologist. I'm, 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 I'm just someone who talks about politics. But to me, and also from reading your book, it kind of felt like you were willing to make that distinction between biology and, and, and society, which is if you are born, I think the terms you use is with, with an intrinsic inclination to have the gender identity of a a woman or the subconscious sex, I think you call it the subconscious sex of a woman, then wherever you're born in whatever society, in whatever time and place, you are not going to be happy living as a man. Now that might be expressed differently according to the, to the dominant culture of the time, whether that's as a third sex, whether that's as a trans woman, whether that's as genderqueer as you talk about. But there is, you can in terms of providing an explanation of these things, separate biology from, from society. And I suppose to, to put my own experiences, I think of my own homosexuality very much that way. I think I was born gay. Like I don't know if that's because of genes or because of hormones in the womb. Like I, I haven't settled on on the one explanation that, that definitely explains it, but I'm pretty sure there's something which is biological going on, which is why I'm only really sexually attracted to men as opposed, as opposed to women. So I feel, I feel like in that sense, that a distinction can be made between the biological and the social. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with that. Um, I definitely think that there's a lot of evidence to suggest that there is something biological going on with regards to sexual orientation, gender identity and gender expression, both because you can see those differences exist like pan-culturally. <laughs> so, and you can also see aspects of that in other species, right? Um, and it makes sense in that, you know, if they're overlapping bell curves between male and female, there are always going to be some people who are like in the in-between area, right? And um, I think that that's a natural thing that happens. So that is biological. And in the book, when I talk about intrinsic inclinations, the, the point is that 
I think that there is something intrinsic that's there. And then we're in a society and as individuals, we have to make sense of it. And just like you said, um, like I think based on my experiences, I'm pretty sure I would be trans no matter what culture I grew up in. Um, it's just that, uh, like that experience and people say like born that way. Um, and you know, people can, some people will debate that. And there are some people who don't feel like they were born that way, whether it's with regards to their sexuality or their gender. Um, so yeah, so I agree that there is something intrinsic and natural and biological about it. Um, and then the social is kind of how we make sense of that. Yeah, no, no, I mean, I, I found that really persuasive in the book, that I did, you know, because I think of how I saw myself in that book, you know, you've, you've got your, in, what genitalia you're born with, your intrinsic inclination to what, you know, what, what body you feel comfortable in. And so I feel quite comfortable in, in, in my male body. That makes sense to me. And in, in your description of it, you say, you know, being trans is a bit like your, your body doesn't make sense in that sort of fundamental way. You don't, you don't identify with your body in the same way that a cis person would or a trans person would you know after after transition um i suppose i want to focus on because some people might be watching this and i've had conversations like this before and people say why do you care you know why why do you care whether or not being trans being gay is biological or social and i think it's a good question but and i have a couple of answers i suppose one of them though is it i think it's important for, for dismissing certain arguments against um trans inclusion or against gay inclusion if we're, we're 20 years ago to say oh this is all a trend this is just a trend this is people jumping on a bandwagon and why should we change the norms of society because people are deciding that they want to opt out of them you know w- why should we compromise what we mean when we say uh, a woman's changing room or what we mean when we say uh, a woman's prison or what we mean when we say women's weightlifting championship because a bunch of people are deciding that they just you know on the whim of it feel like being the other gender and i, I think once you ground this in no this isn't a choice this th- even if you feel like oh you you have to reassess what these things mean or you have to make some some compromises that's because there's no alternative that, that it's the same with with gay people right you might say oh this is this is undermining our concept of marriage this is undermining my religious beliefs why do i have to do this to accommodate your lifestyle and the argument was this isn't a lifestyle this is who i am so even if you find it difficult you're going to have to learn to live with it. From my experience on the left, because there is such a reluctance to use those born this way arguments, I think often these conversations do become a bit of a dead end. And, and that to me is, you know, sometimes looking on this from without, why these arguments can often seem so intractable, because I think, you know, neither side want to recognise that, that basic fact, which is that transness is something which exists in biology. It's not a social construct. Yeah, I mean, I think it's useful to, I agree with you, and I think it's useful to break this down. I think it's useful to look at why some people reject the born that way argument. And I think it's multiple reasons. I think there are some people who are suspicious of biology because biology has long been used as a weapon against LGBTQIA plus people, right? Um, you know, just like, oh, God made you know, Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve being used as an argument for, um, you know, like a anti, uh, gay rights message or the way that modern day, 
um, people are, are wielding biology, biological sex against trans people. So I think that there's been suspicion for understandable reasons about the biology argument. I think there are also people for, so, you know, you and I may have had experiences that feel like born that way and that probably are intrinsic to us, that, that probably are biological, that we turned out different from other people, understood that at a very early age and had to make sense of that. Um, I, there are some people who like later in life kind of come to these realizations. And I think some of those people don't like the idea of the born that way because it doesn't make sense for their experiences. Um, and their experiences don't negate our experiences, nor do ours negate their experiences. But I think that that's some, sometimes people are suspicious for that reason. And then another reason is that I think that some people feel that it feels defeatist, that it's, uh, if, if it's not a choice, if we're born that way, it's not a choice. Um, people will make the argument that, well, you know, I, I should be allowed to choose to be gay or I should be allowed to choose to be trans. And, that's a valid argument, but I don't think, uh, I think that that's just the flip side of born that way. <laughs> like, um, I, I don't think that that's, I think we can acknowledge that it should be a choice while simultaneously saying for some of us, it's like an intrinsic inclination. It's something that we experience that's very deeply, profoundly felt and inexplicable. I'd like using the word inexplicable for me being trans or the way other people experience their sexualities or their genders that like, I had no idea. It wasn't like one day I was just like, Oh, it would be interesting to be a girl. Maybe that's a, a life choice I'm going to pursue. It was no, I like had these feelings. Like I always felt there was something wrong with me being a boy. When I was like a, a really young kid, I would draw pictures of like needles going into a penis that in my mind was a medicine that made the penis go away which is just like a weird thing to do that it wasn't on TV. I grew up way pre-internet. I, I had no thing. I just had this understanding that something was wrong with it. Um, I, I was just, I, I, I recently heard a story about another trans person talking about, like a, about a young trans kid who was like, when is my penis going to go away? Like, the, like these are really deeply felt feelings that weren't like, you know, taught to me or taught to other trans people. And, uh, so I kind of went on a, 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 diverge, a diversion there. So like, I think it should be a, a positive thing that people can choose to be gay or choose to be trans while we can simultaneously admit the fact that for a lot of us, it's inexplicable and we didn't really have a, a choice other than the choice to decide how we're going to live our lives. Like whether we're going to be genuine about who we are or remain closeted or pretend to be someone we aren't. Mm. I mean, I suppose w with the massive caveat that all of the bathroom bills is just pure conservative reaction. I, I do feel that the, the gender critical movement also came from a threat that people correctly or incorrectly read into the movement for, for trans inclusion, which is to, to change the meaning of what it is to be a trans woman to someone who's gone through a process to someone who just says they're a woman. And, and I think this is where people, you know, this is why the, the Piers Morgan, can I just define as a penguin and tomorrow I'm a penguin. And I, I think potentially people haven't been clear enough or, you know, pe people are wrong potentially if they think that to be a woman is to say you are a woman. I, I, again, I'll bring in my own homosexuality here. I'm not gay because I say I'm gay, right? I'm, I, I'm gay because I'm sexually attracted to men 
almost exclusively. That, that, that's what makes me go. The best way to find out is probably to ask me and I'll tell you, you know, it's not to put a video camera in my bedroom, but me being gay isn't because I say I'm gay. And I, I feel like a, a weakness of the argument for trans inclusion and, and why it has received, you know, such pushback as well as that, you know, there was just conservative reaction to any fight for, for liberation, but a sort of weak point they've found is this idea that there isn't more to being a woman than saying you are one. And that's why people are worried, well, does this mean that people who, for all intents and purposes, haven't transitioned to being a woman will will arrive in, in women's spaces? Do you see what I'm getting at here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think part of the problem is that a lot of, and, and especially with policy, but also um, kind of the language that trans people have had to understand ourselves is there's this term gender identity, which was invented in the 1960s um, by researchers who were studying trans people and intersex people <clears throat> and trying to make sense of um, like, oh, that there are some people who like have these strong feelings that they should be this way, even though they were born that way. Right. Um, and, the thing is that the word identity and identify have, whether it's discussions about identity politics or whether it's discussions about trans people and gender identity, I think it's very, very easy to twist them um, and distort them and make them sound like, you know, and, and like you said, that identify as a penguin or identify as an attack helicopter. Um, it's people in trans communities talk about the one joke that everybody tells, which is the... I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm a person who identifies as a blah, 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 right? And that is very frustrating. Um, I, from a trans perspective, um, there's both the term gender identity is a term that is a legal term that, and a medical term that has existed that trans people have used, not because we coined it and thought it was the best word. It was just the one that was around and it's the one that has been picked up. I think the second thing is, I have never met a person in my whole life who, who their trans story is, well, one day I just decided that I identified as a woman. <laughs> if you actually talk to trans people, every trans person will tell you a very different story. That's a story that always involves a lot of contemplation and a lot of making sense of feelings that are difficult to put into words. For me, what it was was it was a very, very strong, inexplicable feeling that something was wrong and me trying to make sense of what that is. And w the way that that played out for me is I'm a trans woman. Like I understood that I needed to be myself. Other trans people maybe come to that realization later in life, but it's never like just a, oh, I just decided to identify as a woman. Like if you talk to people who came to that understanding a little later in life, it's just as valid. It's just, it came later in life and they, started making sense of feelings. Oh, I've already always had some feelings and I didn't know how to make sense of it. And at a certain point, it becomes, oh, um, maybe I'm trans. Maybe, maybe I, I am a woman, right? And that's difficult for every trans person I know. It's a very long process of years of like trying to make sense of who you are in a world where there's this really dichotomous, men versus women, boys versus girls, um, society. I think it's disingenuous to imply, and I'm not saying you're doing this, I mean, like, the people who do imply, apply, imply that trans people are just, like, 
magically overnight identifying to be a woman, you know, it's, for all of us, it's a very, um, a very long and involved process that involves a lot of self-contemplation and learning about gender and sex and sexuality and trying to figure out our place in the world. Julia Serrano, thank you so much for speaking to me today. As I say, I found your book really, really influential, really lovely having like a, an open conversation about, as I say, I, I sometimes find these conversations difficult. I'm not sure if you think I sort of over-egged that a little bit, the, the, the fact that sometimes talking about sex and biology and gender and sexuality can be can be controversial, but I, I have found it in my experience to be. So I, I really do appreciate you, you spending the time to, to talk to us in, in such a frank and open way today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciated it. It was a, a great conversation. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support. <laughs>